I'm Marianne Kobasak-McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today, I'm speaking with Jessica Wilkerson, who is Senior Cyber Policy Advisor and Medical Device Cybersecurity Team Lead within the Food and Drug Administration's Center for Devices and Radiological Health. We're going to be speaking about newly released final guidance from the FDA pertaining to the cybersecurity of pre-market medical devices. The release of the new guidance coincides with the FDA's refuse to accept policy, which is slated to go into full effect on October 1st. Under the policy, the FDA can automatically reject pre-market medical device submissions that don't include specific cybersecurity details required by the agency as spelled out under a new law that went into effect at the end of last year. The refuse to accept policy, which has long been used by the FDA for certain other products, actually has been on the books since March for medical device cybersecurity, but the FDA provided some grace time to give medical device makers an on-ramp to better prepare for what they need to submit to the agency. And the FDA over the last several months has been working interactively with medical device manufacturers to help them better understand what's required. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you. Very happy to be here. The FDA's new pre-market guidance finalizes draft guidance that was issued in April 2022. So what's the most significant changes between the draft guidance and the final guidance? So there are three big buckets. One is an expanded scope uh, to include some of the CBER, Center for Biologics, submission types, included some considerations for combination products. And we added elements associated with requirements under those new authorities that you have been mentioning, Section 524B of the Food and Drug, Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act related to ensuring cybersecurity of devices. There were also certain structure changes. We added new subsections in the security risk management section to clarify documentation deliverables. And we also added Appendix 4 to further clarify pre-market submission documentation recommendations. And lastly, one area that we know is of significant interest, not least of which because we received many comments on the April 2022 draft, is the Software Bill of Materials section. So we added further clarifications into that section, uh, strengthening our pointing to and alignment with the 2021 NTAA SBOM framing document, and also clarified that supporting materials can be separate from the SBOM. The FDA has been working with medical device makers during the refuse to accept grace period, if you want to call it that. What sorts of issues did the FDA most often find the device makers struggling with when it does come to cybersecurity of their products and the information that they're able to provide to the FDA? Sure. I think one of the, the big areas is that software bill of materials issue. And this is not necessarily due to any, anything specific to the manufacturers or what the agency is asking for, but uh, software bill of materials in many ways is still a maturing and evolving concept. And so we are one of the first federal agencies to be explicitly requiring uh, software bill of materials as part of our regulatory process. 
And so we are, uh, all of us, evolving and, and learning and growing when it comes to how best to approach software bill of materials, what that then implies and includes related to vulnerability management if software bill of materials is revealing known vulnerabilities or other issues within a device's software supply chain. Uh, so I think that has been one of the biggest issues that we have been working with manufacturers on throughout this process. So when it comes to the software bill of materials, when you sort of drill down, what sort of difficulties do they have, the manufacturers? Is it, you know, getting the information that's needed from, you know, the component makers that they deal with or the software developers that perhaps they're working with, you know, everyone sort of being transparent enough so that the device maker can be transparent then to the FDA in terms of the information that is contained in the software bill of materials? Yeah, there are several different areas that have been growing opportunities and learning opportunities when it comes to software bill of materials, one of which is what you were saying related to getting the information from the upstream upstream suppliers. Uh, And it, it may, in certain circumstances, be less related to a lack of transparency and more that even once you get the information in other areas of cybersecurity and standards, we have standardized ways of presenting information. For example, the Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures Program standardized how to label vulnerabilities so that everyone could speak the same language. We don't necessarily have that in terms of some elements of software bill of materials like component naming. So one manufacturer could say that a company is component is company X. A different manufacturer might capture that information as component X, comma, Inc. And so these differences seem very small, but when you're operating at a very large scale with the number of software components that may come in with the software bill of materials, these kinds of little issues like lack of consistent naming uh, can become bigger issues. The other one that we typically see is going back to that issue around vulnerability management, because of course, we're not asking for software bill of material information just to ask for it. We are asking for it so that we can use it. And we use it by cross-referencing software bill of materials information with other known information, such as known vulnerabilities. And so what it it starts to reveal is this question of, um, well, what vulnerabilities need to be addressed? What vulnerabilities may be addressable later? And how do I prioritize all of these different things? And then I think that the last major one that we see is related to depth or what is typically referred to as hops. How many hops back or up in my supply chain do I have to go in order to have a complete S-bomb? So if I'm using component X, but component X itself uses component Y and component Y uses component Z, you know, how many different hops back do I as the medical device manufacturer have to go And so this is where we point to, for all of these issues, this is where we point to um, the consensus work that is being done. I was first at NTAA and then at CISA uh, to help answer some of these questions. So Jessica, with that said, how should medical device makers use this new final guidance? How might it help them prepare for complying with the FDA's expectations for cybersecurity in their pre-market submissions and the information that these vendors provide to the FDA? The guidance is incredibly robust. I think at, at final count, it is 57 total pages, uh, inclusive of all cover pages and all of that. So there is a significant amount of detail 
in the guidance, it is broken down into very specific subsections uh, that go into even further detail on things like threat modeling, software bill of materials, labeling, and so on. And so, uh, you know, we say it all the time, but we really cannot stress enough reading the cybersecurity guidance and becoming familiar with what it contains, with the details that it has, is the is one of the most effective ways that organizations and medical device manufacturers can prepare themselves for a submission. We would also say we are a very open team, and so we frequently work with stakeholders uh, through established FDA processes to answer questions and provide clarifications on the guidances. And so if there are questions on the guidances, you know, we, we welcome stakeholders coming to us so that we can have those conversations and assist with a uh, a successful submission process. When the FDA sort of reviews these submissions for medical device cybersecurity, what are they looking at? Is it more sort of a, like a checklist or do they kind of drill down and, and look at you know the actual information in terms of how robust, for instance, you know, a cybersecurity practice might be, or you know, if it sees something on a software bill of materials that might be a big red flag, oh gosh, this vendor hasn't been supporting this component for years. Why are they including it in a new device? You know, that sort of thing, or what is it that you're going to be looking at? We look at several things in a submission, and I do want to stress that uh, it is not a checklist exercise. It is very much an a in-depth review of the documentation, because what we're looking for is not a yes-no answer of does this medical device have a certain cybersecurity capability or a certain cybersecurity control. We are looking for, in total, is this medical device resilient to cyber threats. In the language of the statute, does this medical device provide a reasonable assurance that the device and related systems are cyber secure? So that's not something that can be done in a checklist fashion. That's something that has to be taken in total from the different characteristics of the device, uh, including things like its threat model, including things like its update capability, its software supply chain, and some of these other things. And the reviewers look at all of this information. They are specially trained to do this kind of review. And they look for, as you said, red flags of things that may suggest that the medical device uh, does not fully provide that reasonable assurance that the device and related systems are cyber secure, in which case we can work with the manufacturer to address uh, any potential shortcomings. So the FDA over the last several months has been working sort of interactively with device makers sort of, you know, as an on-ramp to when this refuse to accept policy, you know, really kicks in. What should medical device makers expect, you know, when this policy is, you know, officially kicked off here? If they, for instance, if they get a submission rejected, you know, what do they do? Do they get a chance to reapply? How many chances do they get? Does the FDA tell them exactly what it is that they need to do in order to make it a sufficient submission? You know, what should the medical device makers expect in the process? I think uh, one thing that's very important to understand in the context of the RTA policy as it applies to cybersecurity, the FTA has always had a very collaborative approach with the medical device manufacturer community when it comes to making sure that submissions or attempting to make sure that submissions are successful. 
So the pre-submission process, the queue submission process, where manufacturers can come to the agency in advance of an official submission to begin that collaborative conversation about what may be needed, what to expect, and so on, that existed prior to the grant of the cybersecurity authorities and the stated RTA policy related to cybersecurity and will continue to exist after it uh, because that collaborative way of doing things is how FDA sees us and the sector as being most successful in being able to meet patient care needs and, and support the health of the nation. But in terms of specifically what can happen when uh, device submissions are seen as insufficient, we have what is known as the deficiency process. And so there's something called the four-part harmony process for deficiencies in which the reviewers have a structured way of documenting what specifically is missing from a given submission and explaining to the manufacturer why it's needed, how it should be provided, and so on. And so uh, where information is missing, and this is related to cybersecurity or any other part of a submission, the medical device manufacturers will be given one or more of these deficiencies and be given the opportunity to correct it. Uh, and this process can, can repeat uh, many times uh, until either the submission is successful or the medical device manufacturer makes a, a decision about how they would like to proceed. So this is a change perhaps for medical device makers, perhaps those that were not quite, you know, on the ball with cybersecurity than some of their competitors and, you know, so on and so forth. For the FDA itself, you know, how big of a challenge has this been, you know, in terms of, you know, assembling, you know, the team and the expertise to do the reviews? Did you need to like train certain people? Did you need to like hire new people? How does that work? Is there like a whole team dedicated to the cybersecurity review process or is cybersecurity review part of what you know other reviewers now do? The cybersecurity review process at FDA, uh, one thing that I, I do and want to highlight and make sure is, is very clear is FDA has been doing very robust cybersecurity reviews for a very long time. Our cybersecurity review process and interest in, in medical device cybersecurity did not begin with uh, the authorities. So for a long time, our reviewers have been doing cybersecurity reviews of medical devices. They, it has been part of their day-to-day uh, -day activities. So the, the change that came with the new authorities is the intensity uh, of that training, the length of the training and so on. But there was specific cybersecurity training that was introduced. And, and the thing is all of the reviewers get this cybersecurity training. So all FDA review staff are trained in cybersecurity reviews. We do have a special group that is trained called the cybersecurity focal points where they are additional specialists with additional training and expertise on cybersecurity. So all reviewers can do minimum levels of cybersecurity reviews where systems may be especially complex or complicated areas of cybersecurity may arise. They can consult these cybersecurity focal points, these more specialized trained focal points to get assistance with the full review but all of our reviewers are trained to be able to do this kind of review. And we do have that very robust team across the entirety of the agency. And in terms of the reviews and you know, the robustness of the reviews, do any of the 
products get tested for cybersecurity or is it, you know, a matter of sort of drilling down to see if everything sort of makes sense with what the vendor is presenting? FDA does not perform testing of devices. Can, this is not just in um, cybersecurity, but for, for device reviews generally, that is not something that the agency does. Instead, cybersecurity testing is part of the cybersecurity guidance. You can see there's a, an entire cybersecurity section that we uh, recommend or require, depending on what type of device it is and whether it falls into the statutory authority, cybersecurity testing to be done by the manufacturer. And then they must present that information to us as part of their submission. So if they get penetration testing performed or static or dynamic code testing is done, that documentation of that test and its results comes in as part of the submission, and then the FDA will review that submission and that testing documentation to make a determination as part of the overall finding of reasonable assurance that the device and related systems are cyber secure. And the guidance also had noted that the FDA will continue to work collaboratively with vendors that have applications already in the process prior to the publication of the guidance and then also initially after this guidance came out. How much time does that mean? I know the the rule is the, the policy kicks in on October 1st, but like how much kind of leeway do they have to really expect you know, to see sort of this um, enhanced review and enforcement of the refuse to accept? Absolutely. The, the, the key to, to keep in mind when we think about timing of reviews and when some of these more stringent processes may kick in is the FDA's process is targeted at ensuring that patients have the care that they need when they need it. And in this case, for us, that means that devices are available that have the capabilities and treatment functionality uh, that patients need. And so the, the reason that I bring this up as we're talking about cybersecurity reviews is part of the work that FDA does and the reason that we're so collaborative is we want to see advanced device capabilities get out into the market that will improve patient quality of life and patient care. And so with the taking into the into account the the RTA policy, the new guidance, the new authorities, our goal hasn't changed which is that we uh, work with the medical device manufacturing community to be as collaborative as possible to ensure that patients have access to these timely treatments and these greater and more advanced treatments. And so in that sense, we're going to continue to do that. And we uh, will always continue to do that. It's just going to be a matter of what are the cybersecurity concerns and cyber capabilities that are coming in as part of these submissions and how can we work together with the manufacturing community and other parts of the community, like patients, like hospitals, to ensure that the devices have that reasonable assurance that the device and related systems are cyber secure. What's next for the FDA in its cyber efforts around medical devices? Are there other pieces of guidance you're working on? Are there policies? What, what's next? As we, we say very frequently, cybersecurity is, is never done. Cybersecurity is not static. And so there will always be more uh, for us and for the sector to do in raising the bar in medical device cybersecurity. One area of major interest 
that we remain focused on is the issue of legacy. And so legacy devices are defined internationally as devices that cannot be reasonably protected against current cyber threats. And there are a lot of legacy devices and a lot of legacy technologies out in the healthcare environment that can place uh, patient safety at risk because they really were not designed or built to withstand modern cyber threats. And so we uh, have worked and continue to work with the community to figure out how do we address that kind of risk. We also are looking at things like vulnerability communications. We know that patients can be very frustrated or frightened about medical device cybersecurity, and that it can be very difficult to give patients cybersecurity information in a way that provides them the information they need without alarming them. And so there continues to be significant work on how do we talk about vulnerabilities and how do we talk about medical device cybersecurity in a way that is informative, but does not unnecessarily introduce fear into, uh, into patients and in the environment. You bring up a very important part of this, Jessica, about the you know, patient safety. We spoke a lot about the medical device makers and what they can expect with this new refuse to accept policy, you know, so on and so forth. Bottom line, what should healthcare delivery organizations that use these devices expect sort of in the near term and the long term when it comes to the enhancement of FDA's authority and its impact? We are extremely excited and really cannot overstate the value that we see in the authorities that we received. We think this is going to represent an incredible strengthening of FDA's ability to enforce medical device cybersecurity. And we think that that benefit is going to flow to the rest of the sector, to the hospitals, to patients, because we can use this authority and will use this authority to ensure that medical devices do have that reasonable assurance that the device and related systems are cyber secure, not only at the time that we see the device and that it comes in as part of uh, the submission, but throughout its entire life cycle. The statute requires that devices be updatable and patchable and that the controls associated with these kinds of uh, medical device cybersecurity considerations remain throughout the life cycle and so we are very excited to, to be able to take this next step using these new authorities that will allow us to strengthen our review program uh, and very much expect that those benefits will flow to the rest of the sector as well. Well, thank you so much, Jessica. I've been speaking to Jessica Wilkerson of the FDA. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for joining us.